0: Point Nine Blue Hill and all over the world at WERU.org.
1: WERU Community Radio has a long history of award-winning public affairs programming. We have been recognized for excellence and impact by the Maine Lesbian Gay Political Alliance, Maine People's Alliance, Maine Initiatives, the Sierra Club of Maine, the Maine Association of Broadcasters, and the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Our public affairs volunteers and staff take the mission of informing and educating the community very seriously, and we ask that you do the same. Become a WERU member and support our voice of many voices. Please donate online at weru.org or on our new mobile app or simply call during weekday business hours at 207-469-6600.
0: Thank you. And the time is just about 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Common Ground. Good afternoon, and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond. Brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU. My name is CJ Walk and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the second Thursday of the month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. So, for today's show, we are talking about native plants in our landscape, their role in our ecosystem, their importance to wildlife and pollinators and, of course, their beauty and functionality. Um, So for today's show, I have three guests with me on today, which I'm very excited about and pleased to have them here, and I'd like to briefly introduce each of them. Um, Our first guest, who is on the phone with us today, is Heather McCargo, and Heather is founder and executive director of the Wild Seed Project, a nonprofit organization based out of Portland, Maine, with a focus on educating the public on the importance of increasing native plant populations while also providing locally grown seed of native plants. So Heather, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Great. And then here in the studio, uh, sitting with me, I have Kathy Reese. And Kathy is a co-founder of the Native Gardens of Blue Hill that has a, of, a mission of creating public gardens of main native plants to demonstrate their beauty and value and to encourage sustainable gardening. NGBH has focused its efforts on the four-acre campus of Bagaduce Music on South Street in Blue Hill, Maine and Kathy is also a partner at Nature Plus Nurture Landscape Design that offers integrated solutions for sustainable landscapers. So Kathy thank you for being here today.
2: Thank you I'm very happy to be here.
0: Great and I also have Astrid Bulby and Astrid runs Honey Petal Plants which is based out of Brooks, Maine. And Astrid grows native perennials and shrubs, medicinal and culinary herbs, and annual flowers for cutting and many other plants for the landscape. So thank you for being here as well.
3: Thanks, CJ. I appreciate it.
0: Um, so I do want to let listeners know that we are, uh, because we have phone lines tied up with the guest, we will not be able to take any calls or comments during today's show. So I apologize for that. Um, but moving forward, I think I'd like to just kind of circle back around to each of our guests to give them a few minutes to speak a little bit more about the work that they do. And um, Heather, if you would like to uh, go first, that would be great.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. So Wild Seed Project is a young Maine-based nonprofit um, dedicated to teaching people about the importance and beauty of native plants. And central to our work is creating a grassroots movement of people sowing the native seed. Most people don't realize how the nursery industry in the last 30, 40 years has really shifted to cloning plants and mostly domesticated forms. And with our native plants, it's really important that we keep the genetic diversity in wild plants out there. So I've been doing this kind of work my whole adult life, starting with studying plant ecology in college and working in the field of native plant conservation and horticulture since then, all since the 80s. And I'm really
0: excited to share with people today. Great, great. All right, Heather, I'm going to ask if you just, could just speak up into the telephone oh, a yeah, little bit sorry. more when you when you come back around. It would be um, easier or more balanced levels for all of us, I guess. Um, I think we'll just start here on my left. If uh, Kathy, if you'd like to give a little bit more about the work you do
2: okay well um I've been in Maine for about 24 years and um the beauty of the Maine landscape is really one of the reasons I think that I'm here um I've done work as a a botanist an ecologist and I've worked a lot as a gardener in the Blue Hill area and um as CJ mentioned I'm one of the co-founders of the Native Gardens of Blue Hill and that's keeping me pretty busy um, with that project. It's an all-volunteer project, which pretty much got started because, well, for many reasons. Uh, but as a gardener, we realized that it was very difficult to obtain native plants when, uh, when we wanted to find them. And we are also discouraged by the fact that there are a lot of pesticides in a lot of the plants you buy at the nursery or at you know big box stores or wherever you might get them. And specifically, people buying plants for pollinators were actually getting plants that contain neonicotinoids and other things which were damaging to pollinators. So part of our mission is really to try to support a, um, sort of the slow plant movement where we can have local growers growing plants, um, our neighbors and whatnot, uh, without these kinds of pesticides. And then they would also be available to everybody who
0: wanted them. hmm okay, great, thank you. And Astrid, a little more on your, on your end?
3: Sure thing, so I was born and raised in Maine, and then I lived out of state in Philadelphia for about 25 years. And a few years ago, my husband and I moved back to the Midcoast area. When I lived in Philly, I worked at a nursery in one of the first urban demonstration farms in the United States called Greensgrow. And while I was there, I developed um, the perennial and shrub side of the nursery, Uh, in conjunction with a few other people. It was a great time to be there, and our goal was to have a local nursery right inside Philadelphia that people could get to without a car where they could buy really good perennials and shrubs and also get a lot of good information. So not only uh, vegetable starts and herbs and things like that, but things that they could grow in containers outside of their house that would help pollinators. So we would talk about pollinator corridors and how if each person puts, uh, I don't know, anise hyssop in front of their house um, and down a block, you know, they create a, pollin- a pollinator corridor. Um, so that work in conjunction with being an avid gardener for 30 years and having containers of shrubs and perennials outside my house in Philly, like 30 or 40 containers. Um, when I came up here, I decided I wanted to do something. Uh, I, I love growing plants and learning about them. So I started a seasonal plant nursery Mm -hmm. and this is my second year in business and I grow my plants in Brooks and I start from seed. I also start from plugs and cuttings and I divide mature plants. There's a lot of different ways to propagate plants. All of the nurseries that I get plugs from do not use neonicotinoids and they Uh, Have sustainable practices. I'm interested in low input gardening with tough as nails, perennials, and shrubs.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. Um, And I advocate native plants, but I also grow and sell many other kinds of plants.
0: Okay, great, thank you. Um, Well, I think in our discussions leading up to the show here, we figured we we should really start with what is the definition of a native plant. (laughs) Um, And all the guests kind of agreed that there can be some variation. and um, So I thought that maybe, uh, Heather, if I could address you directly to start out and maybe start a bit with what your definition of a native plant is and, and we can talk a little bit more about that.
1: Okay. Well, I like to say that a native plant is, and I don't actually like that word, but the best one we've got right now, but it's very political. But a native plant is one scientists refer to a native plant as one that has been living you know was growing in North America pre-columbian so you know that we have records of growing here when you know Columbus arrived and the reason that point in time is chosen is that was the beginning of the great big disturbance when people started moving plants and animals around the world and introducing them to other regions now you know what Maine has about 1600 species of native plants. We have about 2100 wild plants, so that other third of the wild plants are from other parts of the world, mostly the Eurasian continent, and that's because that's a huge geographic area that shares the same climate as us. You know, but are the plants that were here pre-Columbian, they, you know, most of our native species have been Around for millions of years, and then in Eastern North America, you know, we were greatly affected by the ice ages. So, 12,000 years ago, when the glacier retreated, there was, you know, nothing growing here. So, where were all our native plants? Well, they were growing down um, in the Gulf of Mexico or on off the coastal plain areas that are now submerged, and in some southern mountain refuges. So. You know, our plants have migrated back and forth many times. You know there have been probably six ice ages in the last two and a half million years. Our plants do know how to move around. Um, and in fact if you look um, if you've ever seen maps of um, they can study the pollen in lake sediments to see what plants were growing here since the glaciers were treated and so particularly the trees are all wind pollinated so they're the ones that we have the most data on. Every thousand years, we had a different assemblage of plant communities since the last ice age. So plants do migrate, and they shift around. And so it, what, what the plants that have evolved here with all the other life forms, you know, the insects, bacteria, fungi, they all have millions of years of relationships together, and that's what makes... The biodiversity, the ecosystem. That's why our native plants are important. When you bring a plant from another part of the world, it doesn't come with, it's you know the insects, the bacteria, the fungi that both you know may keep it check and balance and live off of it. So, take a Norway maple tree in Europe hosts you know hundreds of different species of other creatures here in. North America, it doesn't host any versus one of our native um, maple trees. So to, when you don't have the native vegetation, the food webs unravel, and that's the you know, basis of biodiversity. So, sorry, that's kind of long-winded. <laughs> yeah. well, that's
0: hey, that, That's some great information. Um,
1: so when you look at it, the landscape in Maine, about a the third of the wild plants are not, part of our original flora. They're, they've all come over here in the last 500 years. And of those that, you know, third of the 2,100 wild species, about 10% of them are what are called invasive species. And what makes them because they don't have the other things that live off them, their pests and diseases from their homeland, You know, they escape that when they get moved here. Some plants, and the true
0: of animals too can have exploding populations okay all right um I think we'll get may, might talk a little bit more about the invasive side of things as well um but I want to look over to uh to kathy and and get back just to the piece of the the definition and see if there's some some variation among our guests or
2: right or well <laughs> um Yes, I agree with a lot of what Heather said, and um, uh, yeah, it's all, those are the facts. (laughs) Um, For the sake of the Native Native Garden Project here in Blue Hill, we are considering only plants native to Maine, that's what we're using in the garden, Mm -hmm. and it's mainly just to demonstrate that there are plenty of plants that live in Maine, Mm -hmm. and plenty of beautiful plants that live in Maine already. And, um, and one thing I n- have noticed is that amongst the native plants for sale, most of them are the prairie plants. And I just want to mention that a uh, prairie is not a native ecosystem to the state of Maine. Here we basically have a forest. Mm-hmm. We have openings, but they're mostly wetlands and small openings in the forest. So a prairie is not really um, something native to Maine.
0: Okay. And Astrid, can I ask you, in your work, yeah. what, what are your parameters?
3: So the conversations I have with customers around native plants are really interesting. And often their opinion of what a native plant is helps me understand how much education that I have to do to help them uh, make good choices for their landscape. Mm-hmm. So I agree with, I mean, Heather's Heather's overview was excellent, and then Kathy added to it beautifully. What I say to people is that, um, you know, often they'll come in and they'll say, hey, I bought this wildflower seed packet, and I want to spread it in my landscape. And I say, well, does it say on the outside what what plants you're going to be spreading on your landscape? Because <laughs> wildflower doesn't mean native wildflower. Yep. So it's conversations like that where someone comes in and they know they're supposed to plant natives and they want to help pollinators. And in particular, I try to steer them toward pollinators, yes, but also larvae, Mm -hmm. baby food, and how important native plants are to that, and that they're very, they're very specific to certain regions. So how do I how do I begin to unravel that for them? I have different plant lists. One of them are plants native to Maine. Mm-hmm. One of them is plants native to New England, making the circle slightly larger. Then another list is plants that are native to the Appalachian Spine down to the Mid-Atlantic. Mm-hmm. And then there are plants native east of the Mississippi and plants native west of the Mississippi. So I try to get them to think in terms of starting the in the circle closest to where they live and giving them a lot of encouragement to think of the high percentage of plants in their garden from that circle. So plants native to Maine, but not only that, plants native to their eco-region in Maine and specific to the kind of landscape they have so that they don't have to do a lot of specialty inputs in order to have those plants thrive. So if they have a dry sunny area then recommending plants for that if they have a lot of standing water recommending plants for that so that's how i talk about native plants we have 19 eco regions in maine so that's a, and and they they overlap and they are not uh, they don't respect the bound the state boundaries of m- maine plants don't respect man-made boundaries <laughs> mm-hmm. and so we have a very interesting and varied landscape in Maine. Uh, there are two large ecoregions. One is more of an upland, colder forest region, and one is a is, is the region that sort of runs closer to the coast and inland, kind of at a diagonal. Mm-hmm. But there are 19 specific regions, and there are a lot of amazing plants.
0: So a lot of diversity. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. A lot of diversity there. Yes.
3: Um,
0: in yes. terms of just the, uh, I guess in the terminology you mentioned that some people might confuse wildflowers meaning native are there some other terms that might be confusing that we could clarify um i know sometimes when we talk about organic farming and gardening the the o word can be used in in various ways so i'm just wondering if there's some of that variation here as well
2: well only when i hear uh the word native my question is usually native to where Okay. And what right. is your definition of native? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: so. Yeah, I would say that's true. How, how about you, Heather? Yeah, I would completely
1: agree with
0: that. Okay. So native to what is the location that it, mm-hmm. this plant is native to? Yeah. And I imagine, or I'm just kind of assuming that there are some that are probably maybe native across the country quite a, quite a ways, or are they more regional?
1: We have lots of species that range from Canada even all the way down to Florida, and then other species that might be native only to a small habitat right in Maine. So right. th-
2: yeah.
1: we've got all of them. So mm-hmm. yes. and, a lot. and probably the wide-ranging ones, you know, they're the ones that migrated faster.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yep. And it yeah. pretty much goes all the way to the Mississippi. Uh, we have a lot of plants in common mm-hmm. with um, mm-hmm. the Midwest.
3: Okay. You know, there's another thing that I'd like to add to this definition, if you don't mind. No, and that sure. is the word, which I deeply, deeply dislike, <laughs> nativar. <laughs> so I, that is a made-up word. That's an, uh, sort of a marketing term that relates to cultivars of native species. So one of the things that uh, I talk about a lot with uh, my customers is beauty right um <laughs> people are really attractive to certain things they're often attracted to variegated leaves they're attracted to purple leaves they're attr- they're attracted to uh things that bloom for a really long period of time mm-hmm. or double blooms so i like all of those plants too i think they're beautiful However, I also want to draw their attention to the beauty of native species. And what that means is and that means straight species that haven't been messed around with too much by by manipulated, you know, us manipulating them. So mm-hmm. turning them like isn't it cool? I made it have purple leaves, or isn't it cool? I made it have variegated leaves. Those are great plants. But I don't want people to plant them in place of the species that are so vital in particular to the um to the larval stages of pollinating insects so we we talk a lot about pollinators and those are the mommies and the daddies those are the uh, generalist pollinators will feed off a lot of different kinds of plants especially plants in the aster family that have good landing pads but what we want to do is make sure that we're providing really those host plants for for the babies and the ba- and baby food and they don't like purple plants they mm-hmm. don't like variegated plants they want the, they want the straight straight species so the term native often people think oh i'm doing a good thing by buying a native are and you might be doing a good thing for yourself, and you might be doing a great thing for a generalist pollinator, unless, of course, it has double blooms, which usually don't have any nectar They're or sterile. pollen. <laughs> um, but you're not doing anything for the babies, and we have to plant for the babies. Yeah. So when I put it in those terms, people really get it, and they understand why native plants are so important.
0: CJ, okay. can I add something to that? Yeah, I'm just writing down plant for the babies. <laughs> so
1: the okay. other issue with the native ours or cultivated forms of the native plants is usually to perpetuate those traits they need to be cloned yeah mm-hmm. and um i'll take the example of 30 years ago you know foam flower tiarella you know if you could even find that in a nursery and i used to propagate a lot of that at garden in the woods it was all the seed grown wild form since that time an amazing diversity of cultivars have appeared and you know often they're just naturally occurring mutations and they're you know they're all beautiful the issue with cultivars isn't are they beautiful or more beautiful (laughs) than the straight species it's that because they then get cloned there's no genetic diversity and you know since this is a um, you know about the show is often about agriculture we have learned in the last couple of decades about the huge genetic crisis in agriculture with you know, the diminishing diversity of seeds, of different you know, heirloom varieties, and you know, with something like papaya, they're all cloned, and then you get a disease. So when you have acres and acres of one cloned individual, you are very vulnerable to pests and disease. And so with our native plants, so take again that foam flower, which now if you go to a nursery, most of what's available is you know, a handful or even more of these different um, unusual and very pretty forms that are all cloned. And so in all of our native plants in the wild, the populations are diminishing. And if we are just going to replace them with clone forms, we're not really supporting the genetic diversity of that species and it's genetic diversity. It's the, that uniqueness of every individual, and every individual have a different tolerance to heat or drought or pollution or increased rainfall, whatever our future climate's going to throw at us. We really need to keep that genetic diversity with our native plant, um, and that's a big part of you know, it. That's why a lot of the work of Wild Seed Project is offering seeds of the wild type native plants and encouraging more people to plant from seed and that is not just tossing the seeds out from the landscape but actually sowing them in you know a little in pots or in a growing bed so that you get most of the seed recruit because when you we get this a lot where people want to just toss the seeds out in the (laughs) landscape and most people don't realize is the life of a seed is very precarious you know most seed gets eaten by a predator or blown away or dried up as it starts to germinate and so when you when you sow them in an outdoor nursery environment you can get really high germination most of those seeds will germinate and you'll end up with a lot of little baby plants and again that's different from a clone plant which just doesn't offer that
0: genetic diversity okay all right. Let me just take let me just take a minute here to remind listeners that this is Common Ground Radio, and today we are talking uh, about native plants in our landscape. And my guests are Heather McCargo is on the phone, and she is with the Wild Seed Project. Kathy Reese uh, is here in the studio, and she's with the Native Gardens of Blue Hill, and Astrid. Uh, Bowlby. Am I saying that right?
3: It's Bowlby. Bowlby. You got it Bowlby. right the first time. I did. I, I yeah. buried.
0: Astrid Bowlby <laughs> uh, is, runs honey petal plants um, in Brooks. Um, so I think I just wanted to touch base on that piece. It seems like the diversity seems pretty key in this whole, uh, this whole pursuit and that the diversity of, this, of the seed um, is really what's kind of bringing that uniqueness or hardiness to the plants. Is that correct?
3: Yes, I mean when you grow native plants, when you grow plants from seed, you you can see in the population that you develop, there'll be individuals with different traits, right? And one of the things that human beings have done over time is select seed to propagate and encourage certain traits, mm-hmm. right? So even in a geranium maculatum population, one of those plants might might throw a dark-leaved variety right and that's that's how espresso which is a cultivar of geranium maculatum mm-hmm. was was brought to brought to be so i do think that growing from seed not only is very important for diversity but it's very important for human beings to do it because and heather can say yes or no to this but i think once you get people to grow things from seed they are hooked yeah. it's so amazing yeah
1: very rewarding. Yeah. It's nourishing. You'll be really, you know, you'll be like a parent all proud of your little baby plant. <laughs> yep. You learn to recognize those juveniles in the wild um, when you planted the seeds. And, you know, that's, you know, getting people recognizing healthy landscape regeneration. You've grown, if you've grown them from seeds, you'll see, hey, that's a little baby I burn them in the forest here that I would have walked by before, but now I know what it looks like.
2: Well, and also then you're prepared to manage them in your own garden once they start setting seed, and th- th- then you don't have to do a thing. Yeah.
0: So you just gather up the seedlings that have germinated? Mm-hmm. Move them the around pond.
2: if you want to. Yep.
0: Move them around within. Okay.
2: Share with friends. hmm
0: so so it seems like we're talking about diversity, but there's diversity, that genetic diversity within the seed itself from each plant, but then also the use of the plant in the landscape supporting other diversity. We mentioned pollinators quite a bit, but I imagine other beneficial insects or other wildlife are going to be benefiting as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, right. Certainly um, by having a healthy insect population, then you have... A healthy population of birds, and um, you also you you're also just feeding the ecosystem. Um, The plants are the primary producers, and everybody else eats them, and just goes on down the line. You can't have a healthy ecosystem without healthy plants.
3: Yeah, I think in particular in this area where you know MAFCA, we grow organically. Here, we believe in it. um, Getting vegetable farmers to plant um, their margins mm-hmm. with native hedgerows is really, really important. It helps them. It helps the greater environment. It's a win-win. And uh, So I don't know if Mafka does much along those lines, but I think it would be a really good thing for them to do.
2: Right. And not only that, but those hedgerows then attract birds who are going to be eating the insects on the vegetables, mm-hmm. in the fields, right. and it just you're right it's like a win-win for everybody
0: yeah, yeah I think maximizing diversity has always been kind of key <clears throat> to some of the organic principles for growing for sure um, so we've talked about supporting the wildlife and the and pollinators there's also a piece that I had been reading about in um, using native plants for kind of conservation purposes or uh, habitat restoration and I guess. Heather, I would ask you maybe first um, any experience there in using native plants to restore maybe damaged habitats or, um, or other impacts from, say, human existence? Yes,
1: well, especially because um, a lot of the land trust world is now battling invasive species, and some of them are putting a lot of energy into pulling out their invasives, but... Then they're creating a vacuum, and that's where you know we need to get the native plants back in there. This is again where everyone wants to just—they think they're going to pull the stuff out and then just throw the seeds out there, and the native plants will come back. I find it's a lot more effective to plant juveniles out in the landscape, whether it's trees, shrubs, or the herbaceous species. You know, you know youth are quicker in adapting, and so. One-year-old seedlings and planting them at the right time of year, which is early spring, as soon as the ground thaws, into May, and then in the fall are the best time to do that. And this is often counter to what um, you know. A lot of people, you know, end up doing a planting project in the middle of the summer, and it's just not an effective time to establish plants, and then they fail. Hope I answered your question.
0: Yeah, but, it's
1: uh, just but really, you know, sometimes they're called plugs. Um, sometimes they're bare root, young plants. When you plant them at the right time of year, which is, again, early spring or in the fall, they establish really easily and are a great way to restore a landscape.
0: Okay. And Kathy, I wanted to ask you about some of the work in Blue Hill at the Bagaduce Music. Is it a lending library there, or...? It's a music, music li- library, lending right? library, yeah. yes.
2: okay. <clears throat> Um, Well, we're, we do have some damaged habitats there, and I guess that's really one of the reasons that site was so attractive to us. Um, we wouldn't want to turn a wild landscape into a garden, mm-hmm. but in this case um, it had formerly been a school and there had to be a lot of groundwork done to... Um, make the site suitable for the library so there was a lot of open ground created in that process so we were able to uh, immediately plant around the new library building but there are also areas that were formerly gravel parking lots and other things so we are slowly trying to get those areas vegetated and um, we will be Uh, turning those into gardens at some point as well. So using um, habitat piles with brush and leaves and straw and seaweed to break down, then we can turn that formal gravel area into a place a little bit more hospitable for all but the most rugged of our natives.
3: (laughs) I think there's a lot of opportunities. I mean, every time I see a crappy little patch of grass I think what else could be growing here and uh, I know that there has been some work with the Maine Department of Transportation to start uh, reconsidering how they treat the sort of the middle strips in between the highways and the verges Uh, Heather have you done any work with them? Yes
1: we received a grant from them a couple years ago and created a manual you can download it on the wild seed project website you can also get it the main government publications website and we covered about 70 species some grasses some um, flowering forbs and shrubs and sort of the methods to keep you know them in the landscape and the biggest message was changing their mowing regime yeah you know mid-season mowing is the equivalent of clear a clear cut to all those open area habitats and it was in the 70s when the really big powerful mowers started appearing and really since then we have wiped out so many of our open land native species just by mowing them in mid-season you know it you know a lot of the native plants they might Bloom in the spring or early summer, but the seeds don't ripen until later in the fall. And so, you mow in August, you prevent all those species from reproducing. So that they have a very good manual in hand. Um, it also says when the when the flowering is, when the seed ripening is, how to handle the seed. You know, but really shifting our mowing practices. Um, and you know, part of the guidance in that manual was that all those mowing machines could be used in the summer to mow the invasive species um, and just let the native species grow you might have to mow a little you know one strip on either side of the road but um aside from that and there's a big movement across the country you know the federal highway um commission has deemed that our nation's highways be pollinator corridors. um but it is how the mowing is still happening that's really affecting that.
2: And the grasses I'd just like to mention um, that are along the roadside are primarily non-native grasses. Our grasses, our native grasses, sedges and rushes, are not equipped to be mowed multiple times per year. Um, they did not evolve with grazers mm-hmm. uh, like the European grasses. so.
1: Yeah, the only pla- the places where you still see the native grasses like little blue stem, which is a, a grass that thrives in really sandy, dry, well-drained soil. The European grasses can't compete with it, and so it still thrives. But right when that's blo- that blooms in August, and then they come in May.
2: <clears throat> Could I mention another yeah. thing regarding habitat <clears throat> restoration? Yes, definitely. I, I'd just like to mention that, you know, here on the coast, a lot of people are facing uh, difficulties with their shorelines eroding. And um, we've been looking at some some new ideas. Um, RIPRAP is not going to just solve all our problems. And um, by creating a more sustainable waterfront, we can also uh, make it a little stronger by using a living, a living landscape on the, on the waterfront. So, um, using wattles and other methods to get plants, shrubs, native shrubs, salt-tolerant shrubs, and forbs established is going to make a more resilient um, shoreline. Mm-hmm.
3: That's a really good point. And even in a cultivated garden setting, often people use uh, m- non-living mulches. And even though they do eventually break down, right, and they can add some benefits, mm-hmm. uh, I advocate for thinking in terms of how nature does it, which is uh, more plants at that lower level, ground covers, and then perennials, shrubs, Uh, small understory trees and then trees. Thinking in layers when you plant your garden. Mm -hmm. It saves you a lot of time. It's more beneficial for everybody else, for everybody. Uh, You get more plants. I I hear people say, oh, I don't have any room for more plants. And I, I, they're always wrong. There's (laughs) always room for more plants. (laughs) Uh, And I think uh, having that conversation, of course, you want to leave a little bare ground here and there for, you know, ground nesting bees and things like that. But in general, Nature doesn't have bare ground, mm-hmm. and nature nature's mulch is leaves. You know, I encourage people to be less tidy in their gardens and to le- let those things break down <laughs> where they can and when they can. But to plant more plants instead of all of that mulch in between their little perennial mm-hmm. setup.
0: Okay, and that's more on the diversity side as well. I, yeah. would, I would imagine absolutely. Um, so there also seems like with native plants, there's also they're going to be hardy to our area, so does that make them does that make them easier to grow or are there some <laughs> challenges is it you know a st- propagation establishing that type of thing beyond the fact of trying to get them to seed and people are mowing them down too soon
1: one well, thing with natives if you match if you you know if you have a sandy
0: gravelly
1: dry well-drained soil there's a whole host of native tree shrubs and perennials that thrive in those conditions. So you don't need to do all the soil amending. And, right. you know, with our food plant, you know, our cultivated plant, you know, we made a deal a long time ago with our crop. Hey, I'll give you extra water and nutrients and you give me bigger fruits or juicier, sweeter tasting leaves. And so therefore, you know, a really good any good... Vegetable grower really knows the value of adding a lot of compost and manure and, you know, to hold moisture in the soil. But we don't need to do that with all of our native plants. That's the beauty of it; they don't need all those extra nutrients. You just have to. If you have a wet spot, you know, with heavy clay soil, there's a whole group of plants that native plants that thrive in that. So, matching the you know the growing condition to the native plants you put in it will end up with a much more low maintenance garden and then letting the leaves fall like after it's dead not raking everything away that's how nutrients are recycled in nature you know look in the forest what happens every fall copious amounts of leaves and dead branches and all the animal droppings fall down to the forest floor to be recycled and it doesn't get raked away yet that's what most gardeners do in their landscape you can rake the leaves off your driveway or off your patio or where you need a little bit of lawn because it will smother the lawn but the rest of your area you should let them fall and break down
0: okay and kathy you had something to add
2: well at? it's also we don't need to cut everything back either <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah you know nature does not need for us to do that and letting the seed heads stay on the plants is a way to ensure that they will disperse their seed in the most natural way possible. That seed will germinate in the most appropriate place for mm-hmm. that plant. It's actually um, from that st- standpoint, it's quite a bit easier. But let's hear from Astrid <laughs> ha- about <laughs> actually growing these plants.
3: Well, there's one thing that I wanted to add to that is that um, you know we live we live in a landscape. It is essentially in the winter, a kind of high contrast, black and white, you know, snow and branches. And to add to that, to leave standing seed heads is just stunning. It can be mm-hmm. stunning. And it's gives us as gardeners when we can't get out there and do much, this opportunity to observe what these plants look like in their senescence and in their, you know, how they behave in the winter and, um, it also provides uh, wintering over habitat for many species. Uh, So hollow stems in particular are a place where some insects winter over. And so leaving those those stems standing is, is a great thing to do. You know, growing plants is an amazing process and there are so many that are very amenable to just coming from seed almost no matter what. And we do have native plants that are, are like that. And uh, then some are a little bit trickier. And so winter sowing and uh, sowing fresh seed, giving it a warm, moist environment for four weeks, and then having it be cold over the winter. So sowing outside in, into trays is the way to do it. And the Wild Seed Project uh, website has incredible detailed... Uh, you know, information about doing that, um, I try to grow a lot of different things from seed. And some of them, you know, if you think about it, some things are, they need kind of a little bit of a rough treatment before they'll wake up, in particular certain perennials. And part of that is because they've either developed so that they have to go even through an an animal's digestive system Mm -hmm. to to be softened up enough to want to germinate, or they're used to being washed down a gully or frozen in water for months on end. And so when we start to try to think about how we're going to germinate things, there's a lot of fun little tricks you can do. Like you can actually sow seeds into an ice cube tray and then in three months take those out of your freezer and set them in like on top of a warm piece of soil in a little pot Mm -hmm. and you know there are a lot of ways that we can trick trick them into behaving the way they behave in nature Mm -hmm. but that's all i'm going to say about that is people should give it a try (laughs) yeah
0: and heather on your website for the wild seed project it sounds like there's there's lots of resources around some of the the germination pieces
1: yes we our website is like a book. It's got so much information. There's different blogs on different aspects of growing native plants, either from seed or um, landscaping with them. The seed sale page, you can go through and look at the different species and read about where they grow in the wild, how they their native range, how, what kind of habitat they're from, how they do in the garden, what other plants they grow nicely with, and when to sow the seeds. And then... Some really nice graphics, also to show people how to sow the seeds. Because yes, it's it's fun, and we need lots of people making more of these plants. While I want lots of nurseries offering native plants, we have a big problem out there. We have a lot of restoration we need to do, and um, sowing seeds is a is a way, economical way to produce a lot of plants. Yeah. And then you can plant a population in your garden. Mm -hmm. You can not plant one plant, but you can plant a whole bunch of aster and be covered with butterflies and bees.
3: Yeah, and frankly, that's really important, right, Heather? I mean, because if you only plant one milkweed, that is not enough for the monarch butterfly caterpillar. And also the way that pollinators feed is they want a big block of plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so thinking in terms of these larger numbers, planting, planting, sowing seed is the way to go. And you can have a nice, big, beautiful, blooming swathe of milkweed or of, of whatever you, you're planting. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that
1: many people don't know is that most of our native you know, flower, perennial flowers, are perennial, they're not annual, so most of them won't bloom the first year from seed. And that sometimes is a shock to people. (laughs) But take Asters or milkweed. They can put on, you know, a foot or more growth that first summer. And even in that juvenile phase, even without their flowers that year, the monarch butterfly will find them and lay their eggs on it they don't need the flowers for the to hope for the butterflies to find them and choose them as a spot to lay their eggs so right away even that first year you can they will be doing their job in the ecosystem and then some species of perennials native perennials will bloom the second year others are more slow growing particularly the woodland ones like But in the meantime, you will have learned so much about that plant. You will hopefully produce so many that you'll be sharing them with all your friends.
0: And so,
1: very nourishing thing to
0: do. Okay. Well, let me just uh, remind listeners, this is Common Ground Radio. Today, we're talking about uh, native plants with my guests in the studio. And we just kind of got into the... The resource bit here, educational resources for people, and and Heather, we mentioned your website, but what is the actual uh, a, a address for the website there at the Wild Seed Project? It's
1: um, wildseedproject.net. Okay. .net. If
0: you just Google Wild
1: Seed Project, it will
0: come up. Okay. And um, I think maybe Kathy and Astrid, if I could ask you, like some of the good educational resources for for listeners to look up with they if they want to pursue this more.
2: Well, then, um, Native Gardens of Blue Hill has an excellent website, too, called uh, go to nativegarden, excuse me, nativemaingardens.org. And there's a resources page with plenty of great books, um, websites, and uh, in the blog, you'll find plenty of uh, information about great podcasts and things to listen to there. Um, there's also uh, a gallery of plants, um, photographs, and a little bit of information about some of the natives that we like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you had a more thorough list, Astrid.
3: <laughs> My list is too long, but I'm going to choose a couple of... Your top
0: two or maybe three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Okay, I can do that. Um, well, first of all, the Maine state government website, so www.main.gov. And also the extension service, Mm extension.umaine.edu. Both of these places have excellent information about plants that are native to Maine and also invasive plants, which we haven't touched on yet, but it's very important to uh, learn about and identify invasives and remove them from your landscape whenever possible. Uh, So those are two great local websites. And then I'm going to recommend a book because people have a lot of books they like to talk about, and they're all really good, and Doug Tallamy is a great author. However, for my money, The Humane Gardener is a really good book, and that's written by Nancy Lawson. She also has an excellent website. She lays out the case for native plants beautifully and succinctly, and then in her book, she has these, she visits different real gardeners around the United States who are implementing these principles in a variety of ways in their landscape. So it shows people what is possible, and it shows them it in a really gentle and uh, real way that just makes it tangible and makes it achievable. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a great book.
0: And that was by Nancy Lawson? Nancy Lawson, Lawson. yes. Um, And it also, I think when I was doing some research, Kathy, on the uh, Native Gardens of Blue Hill site, there was a a pretty good list of plants. Yes. Um, And it seemed like in some other resources, you can look through maybe soil conditions or what the actual kind of habitat is. Um, And some are even organized by, are we talking trees? Are we talking shrubs?
2: Right. The ones on our site, it is... Uh, organized by that layer in the mm-hmm. ecosystems tree shrub, herbaceous fern uh, and also it is uh, goes by sunlight availability, so shade, far shade, and then um, hydrology, so okay. dry and everything in between all the way to wet
0: mm-hmm. um and then so I think within that educational piece um, as well as trying to acquire seed or plants it, are there limited sources um i know some of you are growing them obviously (laughs) but is it a is it a real challenge to kind of find the true native species compared to maybe the the native var we mentioned um
3: well i mean i'd say the wild seed project is of course filling an incredible niche that way mm -hmm. and i think growing every year right heather growing (laughs) just continuing to add more and more different kinds of plants and more and more participants in that project Um, there are other ways to, first of all, there are some great local nurseries. And some of them are by appointment only or they carry their plants in different places around the area. So Rebel Hill Farm is a wonderful, long-standing 25-year-old mm-hmm. uh, organic uh, nursery that grows many, many native plants. And uh, the, I know they sell their plants at the... Knox and Lincoln County Soil and Water Conservation Plant sale, and they also have them outside of the Belfast Co-op in the summer. Mm -hmm. And I think they have them around other places too. And you can contact them. They don't have a – you you know, you can't just drive up whenever you feel like it. But if you get in touch with uh, Peter and Julie, Julie, they're -hmm. wonderful people. So Five Star Nursery and Orchard, which is in um, Brooklyn, they grow – heritage fruit trees but they have started growing native plants so they have a website and they're they you can go to their place they have a i think i think i'm not sure they're there all the time but Mm -hmm. they are definitely selling native plants Mm -hmm. uh crystal lake farm and nursery which is in washington maine Mm -hmm. they have a lot of native plants available fernwood nursery Mm -hmm. uh, they're in uh, montville carol's collectibles which is in swanville they, both of those nurseries are specialty nurseries that also have a lot of native plants and a lot of knowledge. And then, of course, me, honey petal plants. And I'm outside the United Farmers Market from May to October. Okay. So I run the nursery three days a week on the outside of the market. And then you can always reach me by phone or on Facebook or Instagram.
0: And are there maybe within um, the government website? or are there like a resource that someone could find and kind of see online? That would list native plants. I know sometimes you can find pick your own apples or pick your own strawberries. Uh, can you find? I think we'll add that page to plants? our website.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I uh, mean, that might be an appropriate place to uh, to at least list all of the native plant nurseries in Maine. I mean, it should yeah. be done somewhere. I've never seen a list.
0: Just some yeah. of that I've the, put the accessibility some on
1: the Wild sea Project website. Not just in Maine, also because we have membership that goes down. In town vermont and new hampshire and massachusetts but we have under resources some too and there's so many ones starting up um there's also some native plant sales like kathy does a great one at the native gardens of blue Hill. there's one at audubon and falma
3: Yeah, also Waldo County is doing one, um, and I am selling plants at that one. That's uh, You can go to their website, but that's April 25th this year. Okay.
2: So the Native it- Gardens of Blue Hill is having theirs on May 30th. That's a Saturday from 8 to 1. And if you're in the area in Blue Hill, um, on Wednesday, the 27th of May, we'll be giving a talk, like a pre-sale talk, to help People who think they might want a native or have some natives, but aren't quite sure what to do with them or which ones mm-hmm. would be suitable for their yards. So we usually highlight a whole number of plants and let people know which ones will be best for. Them. They can pick the ones best for them.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure people that are that are in the business, so to speak. Um, you know, you buy things, a plant at a farmer's market. The grower is very happy to speak with you about the best way to go about. Uh, having success with your plants, I guess. Um,
3: yeah, the way to keep uh, local nurseries and businesses to go and visit them and buy plants from them, and also you will get a wealth of education. They will talk your ear off about
0: plants. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that being a, a possibility <laughs>
3: in some places.
0: Um, well, we are just getting down to the last uh, couple minutes here uh, before the end of the show, and we've been talking about um, native plants, and I just wanted to make sure that I had... Information correct for um, for people to follow up. So, uh, my guests today, I'll kind of go through them each as we get towards the end here. But Heather McCargo has been on the phone, and uh, Heather is with the Wild Seed Project down in Portland, Maine. And Heather, the website there is wildseedproject.net, correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, we have Kathy Reese that has been in here with the Native Gardens of Blue Hill. And your website there is org. Yes. All these, all these uh, resources. And Astrid, you had mentioned things like the um, state of Maine website, maine.gov. Yeah. Which within there, where would you kind of search? Would it be Department of Conservation and Forestry? I think, it, I think you can
3: search. Yes, there's that. And there's I think you can even do things like just search invasive or native. Okay. and and there the parts of their website will come up but and you can find me on facebook at honey petal plants i have a page there and on instagram at honey petal 1961
0: good pictures right so <laughs> um all right we're getting down to the last the last few seconds here so i wanted to thank my guests again for being in the studio here today i wanted to thank joel Mann for en- engineering the show for us this afternoon and uh i've been your host cj walk for calming ground radio which is the second thursday of every month 4 p.m right here on weru so uh thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening
3: 2020 talks where we track the 2020 election process
1: Donald Trump must be the